with me in your Bibles this morning, Acts chapter 16. We're going through the book of Acts. We're actually on week 25, believe it or not. Week 25, going through the book of Acts. And we're on chapter 16, which is a little more than halfway through the book of Acts. And I've been enjoying myself. I hope you have. And I know we've got uh, many that are watching online tonight as well. I always hear from them during the week as well. So welcome to those that are watching online. We're glad to have you with us too. We're going to continue going through the book of Acts. Now, I didn't grow up in a church that went through the Bible verse by verse, um, which is okay. That's not necessarily an issue, but I know when I started reading the Bible through from cover to cover that I just began to fall in love with reading the Bible verse by verse and not skipping anything because I think it's all important. How many believe it's all inspired by God? Every word, every word of it, right? The, I mean, there's the, actually Jesus, when he was talking about the law, said not one dot or tittle, and that would be, that was, uh, you know, uh, Jesus' term for I's being dotted and T's crossed. He said not one, not one I dotted, not one T crossed is out of place or by man. It's every bit of it's by God. Every, every even the punctuation is by God. Now, sometimes man added punctuation because Greek doesn't translate exactly and all that, but the point is, is that every word of it's important, and every word of it should be treated with respect and honor. And I also found out that some of the times that churches get off and, and their doctrine is not correct is actually because they don't go through it verse by verse. And they'll read one, and if they had just read about five verses before and about five verses or after, they would have found out that what they were teaching was not right. <laughs> So I do find it very beneficial to go verse by verse because sometimes the thought that you're wanting to get across through one scripture would just be dis disproved if you would just keep reading a few more verses down. So I think it's important to, uh, to read it like that and, and to believe and to mix faith with that it's every word is from God. Every word's from God. And I'll never waver on that. To my, to my own detriment, I'll never waver on that. I believe every word is... From God, And I've seen many people, if, if Satan could get just a little crack in their thinking of, well, you know, maybe that was just Paul that was saying that. That's why sometimes when me and my wife talk about the word, and, you know, she may jokingly make a comment. She's like, man, I don't know about Paul. He, he thought like this. I said, well, that wasn't Paul that wrote it. That was the Holy Spirit that said that, not Paul. And yes, he used Paul, yes, he used Luke, and even their personalities come through, but still every word is inspired by God. And the moment you let go of that, you're on your way to really losing your foundation. And I've seen many people lose their foundation in the Lord because they gave up on that one issue right there. They started questioning that and kind of holding that loosely, and their whole foundation crumbled after that because Satan just got one little crack in the door. And if, if you start to question that, then, then everything that it talks about and everything that you don't like in there, everything that you have a problem with in there begins to be open and kind of fair game. And so I've always just believed that what the Bible says, that every word is inspired by God. And whether I understand it all or not is not the issue because God's perfect. My brain is not perfect. My mind is not perfect, but his word is perfect. Amen. So let's read the Word of God with that tonight. I have a feeling we're not going to get through very much of my sermon tonight. Uh, we'll just get as far as we can. I really want to get through the whole thing, but I don't want to rush either. So we're going to pick up in uh, Acts 16, and then really we're, we're going into uh, chapter 17 here, uh, or, or at least the end of 16. But 16.6, let's start there. That's where we kind of finished last week, but I want to pick up there because it it goes right into our story tonight. Now, tonight, we're going to learn about how the Philippian church was planted. Of course, Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians that you're all familiar with. And I personally love being able to learn about each of these churches, how they were planted, how they got started. The people that were involved in the first uh, planting, you know, first kind of movement of that church. We're going to find out about all that tonight. And in, this is Paul's second missionary journey, if you remember. And we do have the correct map tonight, by the way. So we go, go ahead and put that up there if you want to show them that, Doug. That'd be bad if I said it and it wasn't right. But yeah, it is right. Uh, 
so this is Paul's second missionary journey. You can kind of see the red arrows. You can follow along. He starts uh, right over there in Antioch. That's where he starts again. And if you, if you notice, he, can, he goes north this time. and throw, So through the purple area, which is Cilicia, then through Galatia. And when he's going through Galatia, he hits all those early churches that he first planted on the first missionary journey. And really, the first missionary journey didn't have a huge amount of success compared to the second missionary journey. You're going to see that this second one, we re- he really made some, some progress. So once he got through that green area, Galatia, that's where we get uh, pick up here in chapter 16, verse 6. It says, And when they had went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, yeah, if you look at the map, you you can clearly see what he's talking about. You see that when they got to the edge of Asia, which is the pink section there, that and and then north of that is Bithynia that the holy spirit said we're not we're not doing that and then they had a vision and if you look at the edge of asia right all the way to the left there is troas and so they went through a couple little cities there and then they arrived in that orange section which is macedonia and the very first city they came to was philippi and that's where the philippian church was planted. Now, all of those sections, every, every one of those that you're looking at, that, those were all provinces of the Roman Empire. They were all controlled by Rome, and so he's, he's traveling through, and every one of them is different. As you're going you're gonna to see, some places he goes, there's a, heavy, there's a heavy Jewish population, there's a synagogue, there's all kinds of things, but that's not the case in Philippi. And everywhere they go, it's very different because these provinces were very different. The way Rome the way the Roman Empire was set up was the, the provinces, a lot of them had uh, autonomy, and so each one was different depending on how it was set up. There were different types of provinces and all of this, but depending on where they went, you know, depended on the reception that they got. So after they were, uh, after they had bypassed Asia, then they went to Macedonia, and they, they, the first place they came to was Philippi. Now, what, one of the things that's important to think about here is there's, there's three significant conversions that are going to happen in Philippi. The first one is by a woman by the name of Lydia. And if you've read the Bible, you've heard this name before, and we're going to read about her in a moment. The second one is a, a slave girl, and we don't get her name, but she was demon-possessed, and Paul cast a demon out of her. And the third one is a jailer where they, Paul and Silas were in prison, and, there, and an earthquake comes, and the jailer gets saved as well. And actually, his whole household, all of Lydia's household gets saved. So these are the three kind of prominent conversions that you're going to see when we read through this chapter. And remember, as you're, as you're hearing these stories, you're, you're hearing the story of how the Philippian church was planted. See, when you read the book of Philippians, you just hear Paul you know, talking to a group of people, and you don't really know who they are. Well, when you read through Acts 16, you know who they are. You know who he was writing to because you hear about the families and the individuals. And that's who these people were to Paul. So when you read the letter to the Philippians, Paul, there's all this passion. There's all this care. There's all this love because these are experiences and people that he actually remembers from this, from this city. Now, what's cool um, is that today Christianity is still the dominant religion in Macedonia. And this is where it started right here. And actually, there's 1,200, over 1,200 churches in Macedonia today. Uh, one, one person that was familiar with the area said that there was not a city in Macedonia that did not have a church, modern day. And you get, to, you get a picture right here of kind of how that started. And man, that, doesn't that really give you hope about the power of the gospel? Because I think we're going to only hear about you know, three people and maybe their families that are saved. 
but then it spreads to this whole region till 2,000 plus years later, still Christianity is the dominant religion there, and it's still just those seeds just continue to go and continue to multiply. Man, that's the, that gives me hope about what we're doing here, right? I mean, if, if that was the effect the gospel had through Paul, I believe that's the effect that the gospel can have through us. So, verse 11 they set sail from Troas. We made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And that's kind of coming across the Mediterranean there. And they're about to arrive at Philippi from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So it doesn't tell us how long, but several days. Now, remember I told you last week, this was Paul's mentality. They didn't ever know how long they were going to be at one city or not. And you can see multiple times how... When he's describing his journey, they just skip over several cities in a row, right? They, they set sail from Troas. We hear nothing about that. Uh, they made a voyage to Samothrace. We hear nothing about that. They sound like they just passed through. Maybe they grabbed a taco or something like that, kept going. Following day to Neapolis. I guess that'd be a hero. They're in Greek, right? So not taco, but flatbread taco. And then they go on to Neapolis. You don't hear anything. And then from there to Philippi. And it was in Philippi where they stayed some days and they began to have a powerful work right there in that, in that city. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Excuse me, playing the drums got me a little dehydrated. Um, I broke a sweat. I need to get in better shape. Um, now, there's a lot in this verse. This actually tells us a lot of information right here. Number one, on the Sabbath, he says, this is verse 13. You can, you can show the, the verse if you want to, Doug, on verse 13. It says, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Why? Well, this tells us a little bit about Paul's experience and how he's used to doing things. Most of the time that he went to a city, if you follow kind of Paul's strategy and how he did things, when he went to a city, he would look for a group of Jewish men and a synagogue. And a synagogue uh, was always led by Jewish men. There would be a strong group of Jewish men, uh, you know, followers of the Old Testament, followers of Yahweh, followers of the law, there would be a, a strong group of Jewish men and a synagogue, and that's where he would start. He would go to the synagogue, usually on the Sabbath day, and as a Jewish man, as somebody trained under Gamaliel, as a Pharisee, he had, you know, that position. He could go in the synagogue. He would read from the scriptures. He would discuss the scriptures with them, and this was his practice. And what he would do is, you know, his strategy is almost like his strategy was, these are guys that already know who God is, they already have a great familiarity with the law. They already have a great familiarity with Bible prophecy. So it's not going to be hard to explain to them the gospel. And they should be open and receptive to it. And that's where he would start. Now, we know from reading all of his exploits that that wasn't always the case, but sometimes it was. Sometimes he would go and he would explain to the Jewish men and, and people would accept it and they'd come back and hear it the next day. And that was kind of how he got his foot in the door and he would, he would work. Now, here is one of the first times that we see a totally different strategy. And the reason we see a different strategy is because there was no synagogue in Philippi. And not only that, there apparently were no Jewish men because on the Sabbath day, instead of going to the synagogue, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. In other words, Paul had a familiarity, apparently, of how this would work if there were no synagogue. Apparently, in a... In a this was something he'd seen before, something that they had enough predictability that they would know what was going to happen if there were no synagogue. In other words, we're going into this city. This is a Roman-controlled city. Okay? Uh, the, the Jewish faith is not prominent here. There are probably some you know, light persecution and things like that that they're experiencing. So they're not going to meet inside the city. So he said they're going to go outside the city and they're going to meet away from everybody else down by the river. It's going to be a small group of people meeting there, you know, and reading the scriptures, reading the Old Testament, things like that. So he said we, we went outside the city and we supposed 
In other words, we predicted that on the Sabbath, there would be a group of people down by the river that were trying to meet and have prayer, and we'll go find them and we'll bring the gospel to them. And that's exactly what he finds. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come to gather. Now, interestingly, when he goes, it says that there was only women gathered. Not sure what that means, but it's just interesting. It's not normal, not for that time period. Normally, the Jewish men would have been leading something like this. But in this instance, they went down to the place of prayer, and it was only women gathered. And he meets a lady named Lydia. So I don't know if this was a women's Bible study, you know, women's prayer group, not sure. I know that from my time in ministry, I've seen a lot of this, though. I've seen a lot of uh, churches that, and this is not saying anything about the men. Look, men, I'm one of you, okay? So I love you, I know, and I, and I always for, and forever believe in the importance of men and their role in the church, their role in the family. That's not, that's not in question at all. Uh, I'm one of the biggest proponents of that. However, I have been to a lot of churches and even worked at a lot of churches that had it not been for women, there almost would have been no church. And that just being uh, from, you know, the, who, the prayer groups, the Bible studies, all the workers, all the volunteers, just everything, the women have just picked up the toll. And I don't even think that that is necessarily the will of God that it be that way. Sometimes it just happens out of necessity. Because either, you know, men are not doing their job or they've not had that same conversion experience that the women have. But uh, for whatever reason, it was all women. I know when I went to China that this was, in large part, this was the case. A lot of the underground church, church sales were led by women. And again, I don't think that they necessarily even preferred to do it. It was just, we just did it out of necessity because there was no one else to do it. And in China, a lot of the underground church movement is led by, led by women. And uh, not really trying to say too much about that other than just, hey, thank God for women. It is Mother's Day Sunday, by the way, so we love women. But I've always been a big proponent and believer in the roles of men and women and that both should be valued and both should be celebrated and neither should be minimized in order to, you know, elevate one, that God designed them the way that they are for a reason. They have different roles, different callings, but equal value. So they go outside the city, and there's this little group of women, doesn't tell us how many, and they're gathered there praying, and then it just so happens, I guess by total coincidence, that Paul just finds them and walks right into them. And I can't help but think, that was a joke, by the way, on the coincidence. I can't help but think that all the way back in Galatia, when God was telling Paul to skip, to skip Asia, to skip Bithynia, and to head to Macedonia, I can't help but think that God had this little group in mind. I can't help but think that the timing of it, when they would arrive, when they would go down to the river, all of that, I can't help but think that God didn't have a finger in orchestrating this whole, whole thing. And that's just amazing to me. When you look at the map, you know, you see this huge, vast space and area. And you think, man, God was thinking about this little group of women gathered down by the river praying. And then he sends them, Paul the Apostle, in the flesh to present the gospel. Now, y'all are stuck with me tonight, but how many would love to have Paul the Apostle just presenting his revelation of the gospel? And they're just a little prayer group, you know, it's not a big group, a little group of women. Paul the Apostle, not only Paul, Luke, Silas, Timothy shows up. Of course, they don't know who these men are. They don't know that they're meeting some of the greatest apostles of all time, you know, writers of the New Testament. And they show up right at this little prayer group, and they personally present the gospel to this little group of women. What a cool experience. And God orchestrated the whole thing. So verse 14, uh, after they shared, says, we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia 
from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now, just keep in mind, anytime you're reading Scripture, there's never anything in there by accident. There's never any what you might call uh, pointless information. All right, so when it tells you that she was from Thyatira, when it tells you that she was a seller of purple goods, these aren't just random facts that make no difference. And that's how you should read all of Scripture. Because I talk to people sometimes and they say, man, it just seems like when you, when you teach, when you uh, explain the Bible, like I, just, I see these things I never saw and I don't understand. How, I'm like, well, it's right there. If you read it, but if you don't just skip over it, and you read and you go, well, wait a minute. Why would it tell us that she's from Thyatira? Why would it tell us that she was a seller of purple goods? Maybe there's something about purple goods that I don't know that I need to look into. And I need to ask, what, what, are, what were purple goods? I don't, we don't have anything in a grocery store called purple goods. What is that? And what does it mean that she was a seller? And so you start asking these questions. And before you know it, it takes you down a, a trail and you begin to get all these information. But it's, it's why the information's there. So when you're reading the Bible and you come across little details that seem insignificant, just remember they're not insignificant, and you may have to search it out a little bit, but it's there for a reason, and if you look into it, then you'll figure out why it's there. Not that there's always some big revelation to it, but it'll just give you a little piece of the puzzle that you need. So we actually, again, right here, we get a lot of information. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So we know she was a few things this tells us. One, if she were Jewish, it would have probably said she was Jewish. But she probably was not Jewish by the title that it gives her. This is often how Gentiles were referred to. They were a worshiper of God. It was almost a given that Jews were a worshiper of God. It wouldn't have really said that. If, if it were Jewish, it would have said she was, a, she was a Jewish woman. But when it says she's a worshiper of God... It's almost letting us know that's, that's out of the ordinary. In other words, she probably was a Gentile. The fact that she was a seller of purple goods, well, when you, when you look into that, you find out that this was one of the things that Thyatira was actually known for. That's where she's from. That Thyatira was known for their indigo. This was a very prominent uh, industry there. They actually, one historian found out that uh, they were famous for their indigo dye, and they found evidence that there was actually like a dyer's guild there of, of local people that all gathered together. So she could have been part of that. And then in that time, you know, the purple goods, the dye, the things like that is very expensive. And so from that, a lot of people have drawn that, you know, she was a woman of some means. She was probably wealthy. Uh, and we find that out, too, from another piece of evidence in just a moment but the fact that it mentions she was a seller of purple goods is trying to let us know she was successful, she was wealthy. That's why that statement is there, is to let you, anyone who would have read it in that time, it would have been like if somebody said, oh yeah, you know, he, uh, he sold gold bars, or hey, he was a financial planner, or he was in real estate. You know, when they said that, it's to let you know this person had some means, they had some influence, they were wealthy, that's why it's there. So he's a worshiper. she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well. See, another, another clue there, because she obviously is the leader of her household, which would not have been the case if she had a husband. So they don't know if either she wasn't married, but the fact that she has a household, a family at all, probably... She was widowed or, you know, or, or divorced or something, but her husband was not around. So she was the leader of her household. Uh, she obviously had influence over her household because they all followed her decision. So, and you're going to see this with the jailer too. And if you remember, you see this with Cornelius. This kind of thing happens a lot where the leader of the household is saved and everyone else is baptized by default. It doesn't even seem that it was a question. It was like, look. All of y'all, y'all are either my kids or my workers or my employees or something. And let me just know, I am a follower of Jesus now, which means you all are followers of Jesus. Set up the bathtub. We're all getting baptized, you know. And uh, I don't know how many of them were like, okay, I mean, I, I never heard of Jesus before, but 
You know, the leader said we're doing it, so we're doing it. And they all got baptized. And the interesting thing about that is there's no inclination from Scripture that their salvation was ever in question. I mean, Paul's the one baptizing. And I mean, if Paul, you know, one of the things we do here at the church is when somebody says they want to be baptized, we ask them a few questions. You know, we call them that week. We have a conversation with them. Hey, when did you get saved? How, when did you put your faith in Christ? You know, have you ever been baptized before? And we want to know some basic things because we don't want to just baptize, you know, some random person that, that never gave their life to Jesus. I feel like we have some obligation to make sure, hey, you're actually saved. That's what a baptism is. It's a public profession of saying, hey, I'm saved. I'm giving my life to Christ. So we feel some responsibility to have a conversation with people and say, hey, are you a candidate for baptism? But in Scripture, in these instances... Uh, these people are saved, and then their whole household is baptized. It's just like, and I don't know if one by one he's asking them, hey, she's following, are you, are you following the Lord? You know, you want to give your life to the Lord? Well, I'm not sure. Well, you need to think long and hard about it. If you're going to live here and work for me, you're going to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, I don't know how that went down, you know, but the whole household was baptized, and it's not the only time. It was actually, this was kind of a regular thing, and I, and I think that says a lot about how we should lead our homes. You know, I, I hear sometimes modern day when people are talking about their kids, they're like, oh, you don't bring your kids to church? Well, no, you know, I just want to let them make the decision for themselves. That's not how Lydia thought. That's not how Cornelius thought. That's not how the jailer we're going to read about in a minute thought. I got saved and I'm the leader. You're all getting saved. Everybody gets saved. Everybody come to the Lord. We're just going to have a good old-fashioned come to Jesus meeting. Uh, you know, just take that for what it's worth. I mean, I'm not trying to make some point bigger there than it is. I just think it communicates that these people were leaders of their home and they expected anybody who was following them to also do what they were doing and follow Christ. And it seemed like the apostles were on board with it because they baptized all of them. They baptized their whole household. And praise God, it could have just been that the message was so good, the anointing was so good, the Holy Spirit, that legitimately all of them just received salvation, that there was no convincing whatsoever. Like they heard the gospel and they just all wanted to be saved. That could be the case too. So after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. So here we get more confirmation that this person, that Lydia was a person of means because she had a home that was large enough for Paul, Silas, Luke, Timothy, all to come stay, and her household that it mentions before to come stay at. So her, her home was probably a large, a large home. Um, and we don't know if... This was the home that the Philippian church ended up getting started in. When they, when they began to gather as a church and the church began to form, we don't know if it's her home where they begin to gather. We're not told that from Scripture. We don't, we don't know. Now, one interesting thing is I would assume that if they had a lot of freedom to worship and things like that, that they probably already would have been meeting at her home. But remember, they were meeting outside the city for a place of prayer. If she had a nice home that she could put the apostles up and all of that, you would think they would be meeting at her home for prayer, but they were meeting outside the city, which tells us that there was some type of resistance, some type of persecution. And even if it was just because she was a person of influence and she had this, these businesses and she didn't want to you know, mess that up, and so she was outside the city. We don't really know. For sure, but it's, it would seem that there was some kind of resistance to what she was doing. Verse 16. As, this is after they encountered Lydia, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling she followed Paul and us crying out these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation and this she kept doing for many days 
And Paul, having become greatly annoyed. There's Paul again. <laughs> and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. Praise God. Well, isn't it good that we have authority over demons that, you know, you see that in Scripture. Praise God that we've been given that authority under the name of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly how he did it. He said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not anything to do with Paul. But I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Praise God for that. Now, let me say a few things about this. Number one, demons are real. Um, there's, all, there's really almost more in Scripture about demons than there are angels. There's a lot in Scripture about demons. Some, uh, some Christians have a problem talking about demons. Mostly, if you come from a church that doesn't really want to talk about, they usually don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit either, so they don't want to talk about any spiritual beings but demons are real now you know some t people take it too far and they act like everything that happens is a demon you know they wreck their car and they're like man demon you know blinded me ran off the road and caused you know whatever and they say well there's a demon behind every doorknob you know type thing uh, I don't believe that I believe that demons have zero power over a believer uh, this is very clear from Scripture. De demons have no power in the life of a believer whatsoever. Uh, but they, they, the Bible says that Satan is like a roaring lion and he seeks whom he may devour, which means he can't devour everyone, so he has to look for those ones that he, that he can, and those are ones who are not under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So Christians have authority over demons. You do not have to be some... Uh, super Christian superpower, you know, superhuman hero to have power over demons. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It's, it has to do with your faith and understanding of the name of Jesus and who Jesus is and the blood of Jesus. And that's where the authority is and that's where the, the power is. So, first of all, demons are real. There are a lot of things that happen in this, uh, in our world today that, you know, science, medical thing looks at it and they go, oh, well, it's this. Well, those same things in the Bible uh, sometimes were, were demons. And I'm not saying that in every case they're demons, but sometimes that there's not always a medical explanation for what's happening. Demons are real, and if people were demon-possessed during Jesus' time, how many of you know that demons are real today? I mean, I personally have encountered a couple people in my life that were demon-possessed. I could tell you a few stories <laughs> in my lifetime, a few funny stories, actually, but we won't get sidetracked on that tonight. But, uh, yeah, demons are real. I mean, there, and there shouldn't be anything ashamed about that. If God is real and angels are real and his word is real, then demons are real because the Bible, because Jesus cast demons out all the time. However, I do not believe that demons can tell the future. So you got to understand this about fortune telling. Okay, demons, Satan is not God. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere at once. That's not the case. We never get that inclination about angels or demons in Scripture. They are not all-knowing. They are not omnipresent. They are not all-powerful. However, they work through deception. So fortune-telling, all fortune-telling is, uh, if, if it truly is by the power of a demon, all fortune-telling is, is giving you facts about your life that no one else could know. And then once you've been given those facts of, well, this morning you were doing this, and yesterday you thought this, then they are a believer. They go, oh, my God, no one could know that. So when they tell you what's going to happen in your future, you believe because they already gave you these other facts that they know, not because they can tell the future, but because they are around and they see things that happen in your life, and maybe they've been following you around for a year. I don't know. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, if you are subjecting to that and you're putting faith in that, then you're opening the door for that to happen in your life. And there's been a lot of people that through 
things they should have never been involved in, things they should have never dabbled in, things they should have never played around with, they open door, and now they have demonic influence in their life. And that's fortune-telling would be one of those things. I mean, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I don't think we hope we don't have anybody going to, like, palm readers or anything like that or playing with Ouija boards or, you know, any of that. Uh, but I have talked to people, honestly, even in this church. I know there's a new thing with crystals and all the crystal. I don't really know much about it. Uh, listen, all that comes from the same source. Every bit, It all comes from the same place. It's just deception from the enemy to try to get you to open a door in your life so that Satan and his demons can have access into your life. Because they can't do it without you opening that door and without you having permission, giving permission. Uh, but it is something to take serious. It is something to take serious. Uh, but it's, it's not anything to be afraid of when you are a believer and you understand the power of God in the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. But fortune-telling is real. Uh, probably the vast majority of fortune-telling doesn't even have a demon involved. It's just a con artist making some money. But uh, there are legitimate situations, and this was one, where it was from the demonic. And the reason it was making them money is because just like that, that girl could tell you things about your life and about your past and about your thoughts and about what you'd been doing and what you'd been saying that no one else could have ever possibly known. And so it was making them a lot of money. And the moment that that demon was cast out, she lost that ability. She could not do it anymore. Now notice, she followed Paul crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Which is interesting, right? That's an interesting thing for her to be saying. It's almost like she's on their team. <laughs> you know? Uh, hey, these men are servants of the Most High God. They're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. You know, why is she doing that? Well, you, you see that with demons a lot when they came in counter with the true presence of God. It's almost like they couldn't even hardly control it. I mean, when they came into contact with Jesus, they usually reacted that way. You know, just bowing down and worshiping and, and you know, begging and pleading and uh, just overcome by the power in the name of Jesus. So, uh, that's the same thing happening here. But notice, this is interesting, verse 18. She kept doing this for many days. Just many days. Paul is walking around and she's following him. And she's saying this. And he's starting to get annoyed. And he doesn't cast, he does not cast the demon out. He just lets it happen. The Bible says for many days. I'm going to assume that's more than two. More than a couple. You know, three, four, I don't know, five days. He's walking around, this woman, demon possessed. He knows all he's got to do is turn around and, and cast it out in the name of Jesus. Why not? Well, if you remember back on his first missionary journey, a similar thing happened and he got stoned almost immediately. Stoned and left for dead. So I imagine if I'm thinking that Paul is like, Okay, this time I'm going to be a little more spirit-led. I don't want to just do anything because I can. He's like, I want to hear from the Holy Spirit. Do I need to do this or not? Because I know the repercussions, and he was right. As soon as he casts the demon out, what happens? It all breaks loose. I can't say the other word because we're in church, and y'all, some of y'all might misunderstand. But it all breaks loose, okay? As soon as it happens, it all breaks loose. And as soon as he casts the devil out. And you're going to see what happens. So verse 19, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And I know what Paul is thinking. Here we go again. This is why I didn't cast the demon out in the first place. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. Now, well, let me keep reading. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. This was the excuse that you see over and over and over again. And there's a reason why. It was a, it was a big part of what is a big part of the history of what was going on in the Roman Empire. You see the same thing with Jesus, the same type of mentality. He goes, here's the basic argument, the basic line of thinking. We're Romans. Okay? We're in the Roman Empire. And in every province, there are Jews. And in every province, these Jews cause problems. Because they don't serve the emperor. 
They don't serve gods. They don't, they don't bow their knee. Everybody knows this about Jews. They don't bow their knee to the emperor. They don't follow our same laws. Many of the Jews would not even go into the military. They wouldn't serve in the military because they had to, you know, work on the Sabbath. They had to, they had to break all these different laws and things. So they, they were not a part of normal culture. So the line of thinking is, these are those ones that you got to really watch out for because they don't, they don't serve the emperor, they don't follow our laws, they don't serve our same gods, they're, they're almost separate from us and they always are causing problems and so we need to stamp this out as quickly as possible. And, and here's what the leader of that city or that area was thinking. I am accountable to Rome, the headquarters, I'm accountable to Caesar, I'm accountable to the emperor. And this type of thing happened all the time. If in your province you had an uprising, if in your province you had a rebellion, you had a group of people like the Jews rise up, cause problems, you were responsible to put it out. You were responsible to stamp it out. You were responsible to get to gather your local military and deal with it. And if you couldn't, then you had to call Rome and you had to get them involved. And now they come down and they've got to deal with your problem. Guess what? You're probably not going to have a job for very long because we're going to find somebody that can run this and run this right and not cause problems. So this was a common thing in all the provinces. You see this in Scripture multiple times. The Pharisees used the same tactic with Jesus. If you read, the Pharisees were using the same line of reasoning with the Roman officials because they knew the thing that the Roman officials feared. They don't really care if he's Jesus, if he's the Son of God. They don't care what's going on with the Jews. We just want peace and quiet. We don't want any uprising. We don't want any rebellion. We don't want any problems because I know I'm going to have to answer to Rome for this and I want to get rid of it as quickly as possible. So again, listen to what they said. They know all that, so they say, these men are Jews, number one, they, and that carries a huge amount of knowledge. When they said, these men are Jews, everybody, oh, okay, they're Jews. I see what the problem is. These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. In other words, they're causing an uprising. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. This isn't true, right? They're not, they're not doing that. They're just preaching the gospel. But they know how to get the Roman officials to act. They know how to get them to, to arrest them and those types of things. So the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, you can see why Paul hesitated on casting out the demon. But look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I want you to please see how important this is. First of all, imagine the day that they've had. Imagine the day that they've had. Imagine the week that they've had. All of this travel, this grueling schedule, they, all this, these, uh, this commotion and problem with these guys from casting out the demon. They get, uh, they get brought to the center. Everybody's yelling pulling on them, they rip their garments off, they beat them with rods, they pull them into the prison. They've had a long day. They've had a long day. And here it is, midnight, and Paul and Silas were praying and singing, singing hymns. I remember a place in the Old Testament where David had a bad experience, and everybody was mad, they wanted to kill him, his own men wanted to kill him, and it says, and David got alone with God, and he encouraged himself in the Lord. And that's what you see them doing right here. They're, they're praying and singing hymns to God. I mean, I could, we could just preach a whole sermon on that, right? I mean, this, this mentality of when these bad things are happening. Because how many of you might, just might, just a little tinge could have came in of God? We're doing this all for you. We're doing this all for you. Everything we do is for you. We cast that demon out for you. We're sharing the gospel for you. Look how we're getting treated. 
You're not intervening, helping us. Here we are in shackles, and uh, this is how we're going to be treated. I can go back to tent making, but that wasn't their mentality. They instead, actually the opposite. They were praying and singing and giving praise to God. And how many times in my own life and in people's lives have I seen when people react like that, when they, they might have every reason from the natural to blame God, maybe be irritated with God, maybe think they're getting an unfair treatment, just to make that decision and go, I could complain and feel sorry for myself, but instead I'm going to pray and I'm going to sing and I'm going to give praise to God and, and I'm telling you, when a person does that, I, I, I believe that God listens. I believe that it gets the attention of heaven to see his children. Because anybody can pray and sing and give praise in the good times, right? When everything's going right. But when it's going wrong and you've had your worst day and you choose, your flesh don't feel like it, nothing feels like it, and you choose to pray, sing, worship. I've had experiences like this in my life, even recently. Some things happen. Sometimes it's not always to you personally, right? Sometimes if you're a parent, sometimes with your kids, things happen with your kids, you don't understand it. You're like, man, why? Why did this happen? It's frustrating. And, and multiple times in the last year, at least two times, I can think of that my wife and I, with our kids, got together in the living room and said, look, we don't know why this happened, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to give praise to God. As a family, we're going to worship God, and we're just going to go around, and we're going we're gonna to each of us just give thanks what are you thankful for that God's done for you? We're not going to focus on this other thing that happened. We're going we're to just give praise and worship to God. And if I had time to tell you, we had some pretty amazing things that came out of that. But it's very, very important. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened Everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I love when this question gets asked in Scripture. What must I do to be saved? Because people argue over this. Denominations, you know, different denominations. Well, you got to do this, this, and this, and you got to do that. So I love when this question gets asked in Scripture. What must I do to be saved? And they asked Peter that early on in the book of Acts. And now we're going to hear what Paul says to this question. This is a, a very, very, very important answer, what he's about to give, right? I mean, this is kind of the whole foundation of what we believe. So you've got a man that has had an experience with God. He's seen the power of God. He knows their God is real. That's obvious now. And so he asked this question, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. <laughs> I love that. Can it get any more simple than that? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Here we go with the household thing again. See, it's so, it's so simple. It's so simple. And as a, as a Roman who had all kinds of different religion, there's no telling what kind of answer he was expecting. Some kind of complicated answer, you know. But no, just believe in the Lord Jesus. And in just a minute, you're going to see that Paul explains the gospel to them. He explains exactly what it is that they're supposed to believe. In just a moment, he explains the whole gospel message. He tells the story of Jesus, just like we would. He tells the story of why Jesus came. Why he died on the cross. Why he was crucified. Why he was buried. Why he was resurrected. And it's by believing that that salvation comes into their life. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So see, they went on to preach after that. Because if he said, believe in the Lord Jesus, the guy's next question probably was, well, who's Jesus? And so he explained it. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to the, 
to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, I can only assume that this was the guy who showed up in Paul's vision uh, way back in Galatia because you remember when they were in Galatia, they were about to go into Asia and they had a vi he had a vision f with a man from Macedonia saying, please come over here and help us. And the first two people that he encountered were women, so I'm presuming it wasn't them. Uh, Lydia and the demon-possessed woman, and this is the first man that they encountered that got saved, he and his whole household. So I, I presume this is the man from Paul's vision that he had over in, in Galatia. We don't know that for sure, but like I said, the other two people were women, so I don't know uh, who else it would have been. Now the next part, which we're going to have to wait to get into because we just don't have time tonight, uh, we're going to see what happens after this. But here's what I... Here's what I want you to see from this. Um, you hear about Lydia and the women, the women's group that were at prayer down by the river, how they got saved, they hear the gospel. Then you hear about this woman who was demon-possessed and was set free by the power of God. Then you hear about this jailer who saw the power of God through the earthquake, and he was going to kill himself, except Paul said, no, no, we're all here, nobody's left. And he is saved and baptized, he and his whole family. And this became the, the nucleus or the core of the Philippian church. And so when you read Philippians, and he says, Greeting Philippians, I want you to think about Lydia. I want you to think about the woman who was demon-possessed and saved. I want you to think about the jailer. These are the people that began that church and by the time Paul writes to them that church has grown it has expanded it is a fruitful flourishing church and how did it happen it happened with just a handful of people they started meeting together praying together sharing the gospel together and it just grew and grew and grew until you until it gets to the point where Paul's writing to them and you can you can read that letter and see all the things that he wrote to them but it's a it's a beautiful beautiful process and what it does for me is it makes the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, it, it, it makes them more real. When you understand, he wasn't just writing to some random group of people that I don't know. Well, you kind of know them if you read Acts chapter 16. Kind of know them. You don't know everybody, but you at least know a little bit about the type of people and what they went through and how they first came to the Lord and what kind of power they experienced when they came to the Lord. And then, you know, it just kind of goes on goes on from there and it causes our Bible reading to sort of come alive you know and I and I love that